Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Deviant Mind. I'm Dominica. And I'm Christopher. And welcome. We have a great case for you today. It is James R. Jordan and his murder. And if, like, I didn't know who James R. Jordan was, this was a case that Christopher had brought to the pod. He was the father of Michael Jordan. And if people who don't know who Michael Jordan is, he's, what would you say, one of the greatest basketball players of all time? Yes, absolutely. If, yeah, if not the best of all time, for sure. And I think he has shoes named after him, the Air Jordans. (laughs) Shoes. He was, there was literally at one point in the height of his career, he couldn't go anywhere or turn on anything without hearing or seeing him. It was, I want to be like Mike. And tons of endorsements and Nike. And it's pretty amazing considering his background. And uh, he apparently was like a kind of frail little kid. Amazing. Best athlete in basketball. Exactly. And so this case goes back to 1993, which is where his father was murdered on a county road in North Carolina. But let's first, as we always do, find out who this victim was. He was named James R. Jordan, the senior. He was born in Wallace, North Carolina on July 31st, 1936. He met his wife, Dolores Peoples, while attending Charity High School. And they stayed together through what seemed like most of high school for the next three years, where he soon after joined the Air Force and was stationed in San Antonio, Texas. He transferred to a base in Virginia in 1956, and he married Dolores very soon after. They had a son. James Ronald Ronnie Jr. that next year, and James Sr. left the Air Force and went to work in a textile mill. The Jordans had two more children, Dolores and Larry, during this time. And in 1963, James and Dolores left their children with James's mother and moved to Brooklyn so James Sr. could receive mechanics training on the GI Bill. He studied airplane hydraulics while Dolores worked at a bank, and this was during this time that Michael Jordan was born in Brooklyn. They moved back to North Carolina and reunited the family, and James finished his 18 months of training and moved his family to Wilmington, North Carolina. And Rosalind, their fifth child, was born there. James loved baseball, and he had almost gone semi, well, not almost, he had gone semi-pro himself. And Michael Jordan, in numerous interviews, spoke about how his father really wanted him to be a baseball star. And it was the first sport that James had taught Michael to play. Now, James was his son's biggest supporter and followed his son around the country as his fame grew. And in fact, Michael spoke about his father, that he was his closest confidant. And when his father was murdered, Michael Jordan actually quit basketball just two months later and went into baseball and tried to become a professional baseball player. I think he played in the minor leagues and like his father always wanted, but he ended up going back to basketball after some time. And I found a quote from Michael Jordan from March, 1996. And he said, quote, I think about him every day. I'm pretty sure I always will. And every day of my life, end quote. And his family never really has gone on record to talk about what the loss meant to them. They've kept it very private. When I was doing research, I there was not much. Did you? What about you, Chris? That's absolutely 
100%. That I couldn't find anything. Mum was completely the word. Even at the time, that you weren't, no cameras were allowed during the service and things like this. I do know at the service, many of his teammates and other players attended. And it was a rather large service, but... No, I've no, I don't know anything or I have no records. I've read nothing indicating nothing uh, how, how this uh, thing affected them. Yeah, the and, and the way that, yeah, the killing, exactly. We have information on the killing and it was a real strange one and that had lots of, as we've had in the last cases, it was quite convoluted and there were some really strange things that happened. And he was found, his body was found draped over a tree limb. Yes, if I may, he, there, there is actually an appearance by Jordan on the Oprah Winfrey show, and she brings it up, actually. I don't know how long oh, it is okay. after his father was murdered, but he does. she asks if you were able to find, speak to them and ask them why they did this, would you? And he said, no, I don't even want to know why this happened. I don't. So basically, like, he, he was like, no, I want, he's a great loss. He talks about missing his father and how close he was to his father. But then when mm -hmm. it came to, do you want to know why, what would you say to them? He was like, no, I nothing to do with that. Yeah, just not interested. So yeah. what exactly happened to James Jordan? So two teenagers were convicted of his murder. Their names were Daniel Green and Larry Demery. They both got life sentences for first degree murder. murder. But there is a story and... Daniel Green claims he never shot James Ward Jordan. It was actually Larry Demery and that he only helped get rid of his body. Now, so let's go back to that night of July 22nd. So what we do know was that James Jordan was attending the funeral of a former coworker in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was on the road going from Wilmington towards home to Charlotte on US Highway 74. And from there, all the stories diverge because really there was no actual witnesses to what happened next. And his car wasn't even found in the place they claim he was killed. So he was found draped, his body, James Jordan's body was found draped over a tree limb in McColl, North Carolina in a swamp. And he was found on August 3rd. 1993, whereas he actually died on the night of July 23rd, 1993. His car was completely broken down for parts and was not found on that Highway 74. His yeah. body was so badly decomposed when it was found 11 days later that it was hard to tell whether the body was a man or a woman. And again, there's still a lot of questions of what happened. What we are going to give you is a timeline that the prosecution sold to the jury to get these two teenagers convicted. And really, only the killer knows exactly what happened. So this is what the prosecution in this case gave. So mm -hmm. on July 22nd, 1993, as we said before, James mm -hmm. Jordan was attending the funeral of a former coworker in Wilmington. On July 23rd, 1993, a bit after midnight, James left the friend's home in Wilmington and started heading home towards Charlotte on U.S. Highway 74. Shortly before 2 a.m. on July 23rd, James pulls off of Highway 74 about 800 yards west of I-95 in Robeson County. 
Now, there was some question about why he stayed in his car and not gone to the motel that was right next to that. Also Um, of note is the next day, he was supposed to meet up with Michael Jordan at a golf tournament. Ah, okay. So So again, why is... Yeah, he was expected to be somewhere. Be somewhere. Yeah. Yes. And then again, if he was tired and if he was sleeping and wanted to pull off, what the motel was open. Why didn't he just go get a bed for five hours and sleep there? Absolutely. He literally, he, where he pulled off, they say incidentally that he was uh, drinking a little while at dinner. So they felt that maybe he was, he was out of it and was like, I just got to turn off here. And that there is a stop, like a truck stop where all the truckers go to rest on I-95. And a, literally across the street from where he was a hotel. So the thing is, yeah. it's you're Michael Jordan's so there's dad. a rest stop and then there's yeah. a motel. And right. why are you stopping on the side of the road? Like that totally doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so James Jordan supposedly was shot once in the chest that night. And the teenage friends, Daniel Green, and again, this is the story. And Larry Demery dumped his body into a creek about 30 miles away near McColl, South Carolina at, they're thinking, dawn, maybe, because at 7.05 a.m. on July 23rd, a two-minute phone call was made to a sex hotline from James Jordan's car phone. And then at 10.36 a.m. on July 23rd, 1993, Jordan's phone was used again to call Hubert Larry Deese, the biological son of the Robson County Sheriff, who would Mm -hmm. later spearhead this case. On July 23rd, at 1047 a.m., Jordan's phone was used to call Green's half-brother, and this is Daniel Green, one of the teenagers. Then more calls came over the next couple of days that implicated Green and Demery, and that's how they were discovered by the police. On July 26, 1993, Green and Demery dumped Jordan's car in a wooded area in Fayetteville, and the car had been stripped. On July 30th, 1993, Green, this is Daniel Green, records a rap video wearing Jordan's NBA championship watch and 1986 NBA all-star ring, which he had given to his father. Yes. And he must have either had them on him or were in the car. So on August 3rd, which is 11 days later, James Jordan's body was found in the creek, mm-hmm. talked about, but it was listed as John Doe. Mm-hmm. He had not been, because again, the body was so badly de- decomposed, there was no identification made. On August 5th was when the police were notified of the stripped Lexus in Fayetteville. On August 7th, which is then four days after James Jordan's body was found as the John Doe, his body was cremated by a South Carolina coroner as a John Doe. They had not made an identification yet. However, he had kept his jaw to see if he'd be able to use teeth to be able to identify him. And hand. Oh, he kept his hand too? Yeah. Okay. And on August 12th was when Jordan's family finally did a missing person report. And the moment that went through on August 14, he was finally identified through his dental records. Now, there was some question of why the family took so long to report him missing. I don't know. Did you, I found that he had a tendency to want to go off on his own. And so it wasn't 
rare for him to disappear for days. That's right. Um, did you, that's right. Okay. I found the same um, thing. He was missing for over three weeks. Yeah. So yeah. that's just nuts. But as to a testament as to his being flighty, he changed plans a lot. He would schedule things and then oftentimes he would break off from I doing see. it. But something that needs to be said about this kind of crazy thing, and you have a lot of folks trying to figure, while people were trying to figure out what really happened and who was responsible, the things to keep in mind, and some people went down that road, was that Michael Jordan was a big gambler. By all accounts, Mm -hmm. even in the amazing documentary uh, about the Chicago Bulls winning seasons. It's like a 10-parter. Oh, I'm blanking on what it's called. It's just amazing. But even in that, they show us how Michael Jordan would gamble on pitching pennies, who could get the penny closest to the wall. Let's play ping pong. He once gambled. Uh, he told his mates, hey, I bet you $500 my bag is going to come out first on the, lag- on the luggage carousel. And so I they see. all took him up on it, and his bag did come out first. So he got everyone's money, but then he went and go and went and paid the one of the stewards or like the baggage carrier people to put his bag first. But so that <laughs> he was really into gambling, and yeah. he would gamble on golf a lot. Now, what's interesting is that at the and it's, I I didn't get that much information on whether or not his pop was big on gambling. I think he was, but it is interesting to note that the hotel, which is actually a quality inn across the street, mm-hmm. he went for a rest. They were known to have gambling in the back. Like the people who worked at the hotel would often go into the back and gamble. Oh, which is why there's, because I've, because when I was doing research, I actually spoke to a friend of mine who had made a film about gambling. And she's like, when she was out down at the Commerce Casino, mm-hmm. she said that everybody talked about Michael Jordan and his gambling problems and that they always thought that his dad's murder was somehow connected right. to that. That was like the dark rumor. For the longest time. And then people used that to explain why Michael didn't want to ever speak about it, why the family was so hush. Uh, right. Was and maybe... Good. No, I was going to say, because maybe that was why they didn't look for him for three weeks and say he was a missing person. You know, what I couldn't find anything... Yeah necessarily negative and we don't ever like to do negative about victims on this pod but just to try to find like how he could have died in such a way outside of it just being completely really bad luck of him yeah. being in this place but so, people definitely took that theory and ran with it yes. that this was some sort of payback that michael was in deep debt and this is what they did but as we'll see, it has it's actually nothing to do with gambling. Nothing to do with it at all. And it was really just being at the wrong place at the right time at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, and again, right. like if he had just gone to the motel or if he had gone to the rest stop, this would have not had happened. Yeah. So the two the two men, and really they were boys, Larry Demery was only 17 and Daniel yeah. Green was 18. They were soon arrested. And then it became by the police. Who was going to crack first? Who was going to tell them the story first? And they both, both boys were offered, I don't think plea deals necessarily, but saying that this is a death penalty state. So they said, we'll take the death penalty off the table. Who's going to talk first? And who talked first was Larry Demery. Mm -hmm. His story was that they had done several robberies that they had been caught for that summer, him and Daniel, and they wanted to do another robbery that night. 
and that they found James sleeping inside his car. And Daniel Green really wanted this car. And it was a 1992 red Lexus that James was driving that night and that he had a 38 caliber revolver that he'd stolen off of a robbery victim some months previous. He, so this is Larry's story. He claimed that Daniel put the gun through the open window and somehow the gun went off. So it was like an accident, like a robbery gone wrong. And then they went ahead and got rid of the body and stole the memorabilia and had their fun with the car before taking all the parts off of it. And that was the timeline that the prosecution went with for their trial. And he was granted the death penalty off the table. And the thing when I was researching it is that this story changed multiple times. Sometimes the door was open. Sometimes like he was awake because he claimed that he was napping in his seat. Sometimes he said it was awake and he rolled down the window. So it kept shifting. But none of that came on in on trial. And Daniel Green has opposed the story. He had has always admitted that he helped get rid of the body. Yeah. And the car and, and, and stole the memorabilia. The he took the and ring. He did to tickle. Yeah. He was, did to, but, yeah. Yeah. But he has maintained his innocence for the last 30 years and saying, I did not kill that man. I did not pull the trigger. Yeah. And there has been a lot of issues with the prosecution's case that has come out. Daniel Green has a brand new attorney named, what is her name? Mama. Christine Mama. Christine Mama, who she, I don't know exactly where she took over, but in 2018, she was really trying to get a new trial for him. And I found a fantastic article in the Chicago Tribune where he granted her, obviously he, he granted the interviewer from the Chicago Tribune a an interview. I'm using interview a lot here to tell his side of the story because he never actually went, took the stand in his trial. That's she right. always felt he made a really big mistake because he yeah, didn't give he his story. Want, he actually wanted to take the stand and his, his defense team was like, no, you shouldn't. And that hurt him so much, so yeah. much. And the crazy thing is now I saw that it was rescinded, but in 2020, they actually were going to parole Larry Demery to get out this August 2023, and they pulled it. I'm assuming maybe because of what you were telling me earlier is that he finally granted an interview with Christine Muma because the article that I found from 2018 He did not want to comment on the case. From that article and from the court filings that I found online, there were definitely some issues with this case, which was, let's go into Daniel's story first. His story was that he was at a cookout party at his godmother's house at a trailer park and was hanging out with Demery and some other friends. That Green says that Demery left at 1.30 a.m. because he needed to take care of some drug-related business. He invited Green to come with him, but Daniel Green declined because he was hanging out with some girl. And he said that, and this also never came out in trial, but he had friends and family members saying that he was watching TV with them at the supposed time. I beg your pardon, but that's what's crazy is he, he, most of his alibis took the stand as witnesses. Oh, he did. Okay. Because I wasn't um, able to find the court documents for that. But no, but it meant nothing. No, but they didn't believe them? 
they it just fell on 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 deaf ears. And the interesting thing I found about this case was reminded me of the Dahmer case in the in in the the way race played a role in all this. Robeson County's pretty it has its issues with race. There are, it's basically divided three ways. There are the whites, there are Native American Indians, and there are blacks. And mm-hmm. so there's base and that's the hierarchy, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So blacks don't really mix with the Indians and the whites don't mm-hmm. really mix with either one. Mm-hmm. What makes this case so crazy is that Larry and Daniel were really close friends since third grade, mm-hmm. which was unheard of. Black kid mm-hmm. hanging out with a Native American kid. And uh, they were so close, which is why in, in, in what I was able to read and stuff was about Daniel was he just couldn't believe that he broke down to the cops to get him in trouble. Because Daniel, the whole time, while being interrogated at the time, mom's a word. He wasn't, yeah. he didn't, he refused to say that it was Larry. Yeah. And then, and Larry did actually throw him obviously under the bus because he, and that was one of the things in the article was that Daniel's man, if I could, I made so many bad decisions as a teenager, because when Larry came back near dawn, I had never seen him like this before. The level of stress was just off the charts. And he's, I had seen him being scared and stressed, but this was something completely different. Yeah. And that he begged him to help get rid of this body. And he had said that he had been involved in an altercation and he had shot a man near the Quality Inn off of USA 74 and I-95. And he's, he was one of my best friends. He was like a brother to me. So I was like, okay, I got to help my brother out. And so they drove and he was implicated in helping get rid of James's body. Yeah. And, and yeah, and he still, obviously in interrogations, these are his kids, 17, 18 year old kids. Yeah. The cops from all I could see are like white, good old boys. So there's but already that whole there. scary thing that's yeah. happening. And this is back in 1993. Yeah. And so, you know, he's- I was just going to say at one point during the trial itself, there is this really weird incident where one of the jury members requests to to speak with the judge and the attorneys. So everyone's excused except this jury member who says that, oh, by the way, the jury, just like I believe in the Murdoch case that's happening, they were allowed to go home after mm-hmm. every day. And they all knew about this case. And they knew who these kids were. Like, it's a tight-knit community, and everyone knows everything. So that's weird. You're off the bat. You already have a jury that's biased in some fashion. But so the the trial's interrupted by this uh, woman who comes forward and says, after we were released the other day, I overheard a fellow jury member on the phone saying, yeah, I'm going to find him guilty. That N-word deserves to die. Oh my God. Wow. So they set up, so the trial was at a standstill for a bit and they looked into this and there was an investigation and the supposed racist woman on the phone, the jury member denied it. And she stayed on the case. What? But as an, yeah. She stayed in the jury box, but as an alternate. Wow. And then they proceeded. Wow, that's and man. An, that's, and you can look it up. Wow. Anita Hunt. Anita Hunt is the name of the woman who stopped everything. Was like, I have to tell mm-hmm. you what I just heard. This jury, yeah, yeah. But they just no, kept and there going. was, <laughs> and they just kept going. And there was definitely like some serious issues with the prosecution's case. Like yes. I. 
they had no actual evidence. As I said, there was That's no right. witnesses. Yeah. There was very little evidence to sh- essentially go along with the story that Larry Demery said. And, and the car so was they stripped. Really, yeah, the car was stripped. And there was actually issues. There were two different issues. One was that the, the place where the car was processed, they actually, this case was part of a long list of cases where they said that they had messed up when they were processing it. And also the prosecution had left out from the jurors that they actually ran a lot of tests on the inside of the car and they couldn't really find any blood or gunshot residue because the story was that he was shot in the car. And they had the State Bureau of Investigations, a special agent, Jennifer Elwell, she testified at that there were two chemical tests that suggested a pretty good indication of blood, but only in the back crevice of the passenger seat, only in that back crevice. But what didn't come out, and I'm assuming the defense either messed up or never got this, was that they did not disclose there were multiple other chemical tests performed on the leather in the front seat that were inconclusive for any detection of blood. Yeah. Or gunpowder. Yeah. Which was insane. But when they the reporters asked Robson County District Attorney Johnson Britt, who was the prosecutor on the case, he was like, I'm not concerned. And he's quoted in that Chicago Tribune article saying, quote, there was a lot of blood found inside, Mr. Jordan, Britt said. He bled internally. So the fact that we couldn't confirm there was blood in the car is of little consequence, really. That was just one piece of the puzzle in a multifaceted case. But like, He's getting shot in the chest. Yeah. At close, you're yeah. gonna you're gonna find some sort of blood splatter inside that car. And it's a completely yeah. closed environment. And as when you're shot at close range, or even from you're gonna get you, you get the splash, the blood yeah. kind of goes everywhere. And gunpowder. Could you and imagine the amount of gunpowder yeah, that should have been in that car? So incidentally, when it wouldn't be until years later that they released the uh, the results of those tests and they were all inconclusive. Exactly, exactly. And that was part of the thing that I found from the 2018 where she put in a lot of court filings trying to get a new court case for Daniel Green, which did not happen because there was another, there was like three big issues. So the first one was the lack of blood inside the car. The second issue was with James Jordan's shirt. So- He was wearing a collared knit Grand Slam pullover. And there was an issue with both where the bullet hole was found as also with the chain of custody for that actual sweatshirt. First was the autopsy that was done on the John Doe that the coroner did. He stated, quote, there is no hole in the shirt at that point. Directly below that location in the lower abdominal region, there are three holes that would line up with the hole in the chest if the shirt were pulled up approximately one foot. So that goes against what the prosecution said and also that there was then a hole found in the upper right chest area of the shirt. And here's the other thing. The initial autopsy stated that there was no presence of gunpowder on the shirt. When the court case was happening, there was a, the agent was RN Mars. He was the one that testified and said that they found both the single hole in the upper right chest 
as well as the presence of burned gunpowder around that hole. However, now this was before, so the autopsy was originally before James Jordan was identified. Yeah. Now, there was a very strange chain of custody because of the lack of identification. Because he was a John Doe, after the autopsy, Sexton, the coroner, gave the pullover to an agent in the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. This agent, because it was a John Doe, passed the shirt, which I don't have no idea why he would do this, passed that to an employee of a company that provided services to funeral homes. That employee gave the shirt to a superior, and because of how bad the the sweatshirt smelled, they buried it in a bag outside the company's warehouse buried underground. Yeah. So the Bureau of Investigations had to, yeah, had to dig it up from the yard and took it. And all of a sudden there was a bullet hole found then and the powder, which Christine Moom is like, I'm sorry, but that sounds pretty good. Like evidence tampering. If the sweatshirt had none of this, no gunpowder and holes down at the bottom. And now all of a sudden there's a hole exactly because then all of a sudden that fits Demery's story. Whereas before it didn't, because then why if he's sleeping in the front seat, why is his shirt pulled up a foot? Yeah. And, and how all, is the gun getting all the way down there to, I mean, it's just, yeah. All going to show that as soon as this all went down, once they took a look at that rap video, they were like, that's our guy, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I think that they put more of the pressure probably on Larry than they did with Daniel to, to come up with the story. To but come what up makes with the it story. all really crazy is the fact that he go, Jordan goes missing in his, uh, he goes missing in Robertson County, North Carolina. The car is found in Marlboro County. So basically there are three different county agencies on this case. It's Robertson County, Marlboro County, and Cumberland County. I believe Cumberland mm-hmm. is maybe where, oh, and the other place, his body was found in South Carolina. But then everything uh, yes, else is North, North Carolina. Carolina. So uh, there's so many hands in the cookie jar and everyone's just trying to figure this whole thing out. Also, going back to what we said, incidentally, uh, regarding the gambling. See, when the people who took to that theory claimed that Jordan retired because the commissioner said, look, your gambling is too much. You got to take up. This is not uh, good for the game. Like, just step this. I step see. Because he did go back. He did. Re- he did return to the NBA. I believe three years later, it came back. Yeah. So, yeah, it just seems to me that from the shirt to the- and We haven't even gotten to the drug angle yet. Oh, yeah. No, it's just, it's really wild. And the initially, there were four people that they had in custody. And two of them, I believe, served 10 years for stripping the car. Like they found that these two uh, guys, their only responsibility was that they were there to help. It's a relis, Teasley- and uh, Duran mm-hmm. both responsible and uh, incarcerated for stripping the car. And they claimed they had no idea. That this was right. a murder. This was like, they just thought it was like a stolen car or something. But there was a lot of corruption, as we also talked about in this case. Because yeah. if you remember, we were talking about a second phone call being made to a Hubert Larry Deese, who was the son of Sheriff Hubert Stone, who was overseeing the Jordan murder investigation. Now, Hubert Larry Deese was also a very close friend of Mark Locklear, who was one of the lead detectives on the James Jordan case. And the prosecution knew this. And Mark Locklear even admitted that Hubert Larry Deese was in his car. He had done police drive-alongs. Like, he was very close to the cops. 
Now, the prosecution had said he was an illegitimate son of Hubert Stone, and they really didn't have any relationship. So it wasn't relevant. They would have never thrown the case. However, Mark Locklear said Mm -hmm. that they never investigated that phone call and why Hubert Larry Deese was called. He was the second phone call at 10.36 a.m. on July 23rd. So now who was Hubert Larry Deese outside of the son of the sheriff? He was a drug trafficker, and he also worked with Larry Demery at Crestline Mobile Homes, which was a trailer manufacturing company less than a mile from the swamp where James Mm -hmm. was discovered. Now, he was arrested in February of 1994, and he was linked to a Colombian cocaine pipeline that was connected to New York and Lumberton, North Carolina. And he was later sentenced to 10 years for a single trafficking count. Now, Daniel Green says that at the time in 1993, Larry Demery was working as a mule in the Lumberton Drug Network. Deese was near the top of the totem pole. So there was now none of this was brought out in the trial. None of this was brought out the fact that Hubert Larry Deese was the son of the sheriff. And then about five, six years, I think it was five, six years later, but there was 22 police officers that were found to be essentially, they were indicted and arrested because they were part by, yes, by Brit, they were arrested for drug trafficking. So this entire like police department was completely corrupt by the drugs at this time. And And incidentally- the judge was the one, by the way, who shut down the defense wanting to bring up Larry. Not Larry, a Hubert. They, for whatever reason, the judge was like, no, it doesn't pertain to this case, which is but bizarre. But he was the second phone call. But he was the second phone call from that car that judge was made went, that judge next morning. It, so the jury never heard it. And then the cops interviewed these, but they never recorded it. Ooh. They recorded every single interview with everyone involved except in this case, him. except for... Because he was the son of the sheriff. And if the police station was so corrupt and was essentially like letting all of this drug trafficking happen right underneath yeah. them, I'm sure getting kickbacks as well. So yeah, of course they were not going to record it. I My theory on this case is that James Jordan, for whatever reason, saw some sort of drug deal happen between Larry Demery and maybe Hubert Larry Deese or maybe the Colombians. Right. And he was given the order to like get rid of this guy because you're a mule. You fucked up. He saw this major drug deal go down. We don't know who the hell he is. Get rid of him. Yeah. And that's what he did because why would he call Hubert Larry Deese at 1036 in the morning? Like, why is that the second phone call? It does not, unless of course he's connected in that way, because also why would you kill a man? Granted, yes, people kill people for much smaller things, but I feel if you are going for some sort of motive, then the drug angle makes a lot of sense to me that he saw something he shouldn't have and he got killed for it. Absolutely. Especially if you're dealing with the Colombian cocaine traffickers in 1993. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, it's just so deep and heavy. And uh, Robeson, this was a hot spot for drug trafficking. It really was. And he uh, apparently, uh, also according to Daniel, that night when Larry leaves the place at 1.30 a.m. Incidentally, mm-hmm. again, Larry had been living at Daniel and his mom's house, at Daniel's mom's house. which oh. is Which is also... Key because key to the fact that in the beginning of this whole thing, they got a search warrant to check out Daniel's house and they mm-hmm. found the gun in the vacuum cleaner 
in this vacuum cleaner. I see. Yeah. And it was Larry's gun, but they pinned it on Daniel because it was. But they pinned it on Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so and as you, you said earlier, he he took that gun from a previous robbery or something like this. Exactly, because they yeah. had been actually. Uh, they had been arrested and convicted of two previous robberies. So That's right. they were the perfect. It sounds you told me that Christine Muma finally got Larry Demery to confess. Yes. So she writes him, says, I'd like to speak with you. He's hesitant, but says, yes, it's fine. They have this huge conversation about their upbringings and uh, his relationship with Daniel. And then it basically turns out he admits, he, he gets open and basically admits that he felt really afraid for his family. He had been mm-hmm. involved in so much stuff that if he didn't do what the police were egging him on to do, tell this story, their version of the story, that something would possibly happen to one of his family members while he was incarcerated. And, I- and that, as well as not face the death penalty, he admits to her that he didn't, that he killed Michael Jordan's father, that he killed James, and it wasn't Daniel. He said Daniel was there, or Daniel helped me, but he had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the murder. That was with all. the me. actual murder. Now, so did he admit that it was because of a drug thing, or did he just say, I killed him, and not uh, really give the reason how? Doesn't go like, into he, the reason. Did he give a new story? He doesn't, doesn't go. Does he like, go into no, the, a new story? No. He doesn't go into anything. No. But I what's see. interesting is, she says, would you say this in court? And he says, yes. I will say this. In, I will admit this in court, right? And the woman tries to, for years, Daniel's been trying to get a new case open based because that the initial trial was just, it was an atrocity on yeah. all levels of law, of everything, everything corrupt as can be. But they just keep denying. The state absolutely just keeps denying his request. So that's when he met up somehow with Christine Moma has a big, she is a, she has a great record of freeing innocent people who have been incarcerated mm-hmm. for life or on the death row. So he got in contact with her and he had been while incarcerated, reading a lot about law. He apparently would write statements for other people who were jailed and mm-hmm. things like this. So she made it her mission to get him out of jail. She kept trying and it was always denied. And she would state like, this has to be reopened because here's, this was proven inaccurate. This never happened. And time and again, it's denied. And then right now where we stand is she has to, or someone has to take it to Carolina Supreme Court. I see. And so he's still in jail. Got it. Yeah. He's still in jail. And Muma is so dedicated to this that she ran for governor with wow. the intent that she could pardon him or finally yeah. end yeah, She exactly. lost in the primary, but she tried. But she tried. Yeah. yeah. So they're both in jail still. Yeah. They're, I believe, not up for parole for another couple of years. And Daniel just keeps saying, I, I just want the truth to come out. I'm never going to stop because this isn't right so it's and again and it's such a tragedy because please everybody do not pull off to the side of the road and go to sleep it just seems being at the wrong place at the right time for whatever reason he pulled over and we don't really know if he did it to fall asleep Mm -hmm. don't nobody really knows what happened that night except for larry emery and he's just not telling that story but it's fascinating to me Mm -hmm. how one person's story could completely become the events 
that an entire court case, then everything is supported to the story. But the story is just one person's iteration. There's That's no right. ver- no or very little physical evidence to really give like a timeline of what happened between, say, 1.30 in the Which morning. Which was around 4.30 in the and- morning. He comes back approximately four thirty in the Danny morning. Went to help uh, him get Actually, wakes up Daniel's mom. So like the and whole she night testified defense, to that. Know. Like he came home right. super late, and that was everyone was like, "What's going on?" And then Larry was like, "You okay. got to come with me. You should come with me." And then Daniel was like, "All right, I'll go with you." He didn't understand what was going on. That's drive. That's driving around and yeah, so doing that's like a three drug out, three activity. Hours that I mean, nobody except really. for Larry but, knows. Uh, another what crazy thing from the trial, but like a big highlight was. Towards yeah. the end, yeah. they're giving their closing arguments, and the prosecutor, Britt, says, Now you see, jury, this is, doesn't it tell you something that the uh, that Daniel hasn't gotten to the box? He hasn't testified? And then all of a sudden, the defense is like, Whoa, that's his constitutional right. So then the judge, they had to like stop for a moment. The defense wanted to, they were pushing for a mistrial. You can't tell a jury. Yeah. Something like that. Hey, he's got to be guilty. He didn't testify. No, that's your constitutional right. You don't yeah. have to testify. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they were. They really wanted a mistrial. Yeah. But I think around that time, Daniel was resolute and could see what was going to happen. And from what I understand, he was just no. It's okay. Don't push for the mistrial. Like he knew what was going to happen. And when he was he was sentenced, when asked if he had anything to say, he literally yeah. thanked everyone. He thanked the jury for their time. He thanks the judge for his for doing his job. And it's just it's heartbreaking. Now look, this Daniel guy, he's no saint. As you mentioned, yeah. and Larry both have this history, and it's true. And it's just a shame that there was yeah. never any room for either of these guys to change their lives. Or certainly Daniel. I definitely Larry did this. It's a shame that Daniel yeah. consequently, like we lose. Yeah. Two lives. You lose James, but you also yeah, lose Daniel's exactly. life, and he had the potential to change himself for better. But yeah, yeah, and also just being like, "Hey, go to the police if you had an altercation. Let's not do this. Let's not hide the body." I mean, there was definitely a lot of different choices, yeah. which he says now. There's could have been so many different choices that I could have made instead of getting rid of this body, and he's that's on me. I should absolutely go to jail for that. Like he fully takes responsibility of what an awful decision he made. But again, he's in for first degree murder. And that is something that he did not do. That was the case of James Jordan and crazy racial yeah, divides again just, I mean, it's kind of the perfect the storm time and just but a ultimately, huge this thing is what just, i think it's important that listeners understand yeah. that it's don't go down any other routes i think myself included like before we we focused on this case i assumed yeah. that it was definitely something maybe mafia gambling related for sure for sure i think everyone does so it's important that folks know that like, it has nothing to do with that yeah yeah. Yeah. Instead, he really kind of st- just was thinking of that the TV show with Jason Bateman in it. Like he stepped into the 1993 version of um, oh, what is that? What is that Netflix yeah, show called? It's a, it's a play. Uh, with the drug running. I can't think of any titles today. The birds and the, yeah. the laundry. With, with the birds. I can't remember anything. Who's <laughs> Marty like Bird? Mike, that Michael Jordan documentary is incredible. I can't remember that. I can't remember the title of those things. <laughs> Ozark. Uh, yes. But yeah, this is a really bizarre. Ozark. 
Thank you, Google. This was the Deviant Mind for today. Thanks for listening. And next week we'll have cool. another fantastic case for you. Stay tuned. We'll figure out what case we're doing next. But again, thank you for listening. We do have a Patreon at Deviant Mind Podcast. Thank you again for listening. This episode was sponsored by The Creek Killer, book one in the Harriet Harper thriller series written by me, Dominica Best. What would you do if you read The Police Found Your Body in a Creek? Find out in The Creek Killer, available on Amazon. Thank you for joining me and listening to this episode. If you like my show, please give me a rating and review. It helps other listeners find this podcast. Follow Dominica Best Presents The Deviant Mind wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit thebeststorytellingnetwork.com where you'll find show notes, my books, links to social media, and much more. Join my Patreon for special subscriber perks, like two extra exclusive episodes a month and a Q&A with me at patreon.com forward slash The Deviant Mind Podcast. Until next time.